Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. A small gathering is happening in a neighbourhood near the University of Calgary, Brentwood. 11, Butler Crescent Northwest. The mood at the house is described as laid back and relaxed. It's a fairly small party, just friends of friends. Nothing too crazy and nothing out of control. Several hours into the party, however... Everything suddenly changes, seemingly in an instant. Police begin to receive 911 calls from people in the house and officers quickly descend on the scene at 1.30am. They are met with a horrific sight, one that would turn out to be the biggest mass killing in Calgary's history. Today we're looking at what would become known as the Brentwood Five Massacre. Today is Bermuda Shorts Day, a decades-old tradition that marks the official end of classes at the University of Calgary. Commonly referred to as BSD, legend has it that it first began in 1961, when a student suggested everyone wear Bermuda shorts on the last day of classes. It's since grown to become an end-of-semester tradition of partying, celebrating and making summer plans. A time for being together and recognising all the hard work that goes into getting to that point in your studies. There's typically a big event held at the university, but more parties happen long after the campus has quietened down and classes have ended. On April 14, 2014, five students were getting ready for one of those after-hours gatherings. The location was 11 Butler Crescent Northwest, known to many as Butler Mansion, a popular rented home for students. 23-year-old Katie was a talented dancer and artist, and after years of self-discovery, she'd found her calling and set her sights on becoming a dance teacher. She was studying at Mount Royal University, and her uncle said she was a tiny girl with huge courage. She was the middle child of three, but after her father had remarried, he had another baby girl, and the bond they shared was very close. Katie was someone that always knew what she wanted and wasn't afraid to go after it. One of Katie's oldest friends was 22-year-old Jordan Segura, who was attending the University of Calgary. Raised by his mom Patty, Jordan had an older brother and they were best friends. He was a history and religious studies student. His friends described him as a generous and outgoing person, always ready to give a compliment and offer support and kindness to people. 
Those that knew him said he was fast on his way to becoming a humanitarian. One of Jordan's friends was 23-year-old Joshua Hunter, and they had known each other since school. Josh was completing his studies at the University of Calgary as well, and he played in a popular local band, Zachariah and the Prophets. Which he and three others formed several years prior. Twenty-one-year-old Zachariah Rathwell was the lead singer, and Josh was on the drums. Zach loved everything creative. He was fun and easygoing, and was attending Alberta College of Art and Design. Josh's passion always lay with music, and his parents said they knew from a young age he was destined to be a musician. The band had just played at a release party for their first EP, and they were throwing themselves into their performances and building their audience. 27-year-old Lawrence Hong had moved over from the Philippines when he was seven, and was now in his final year in the Urban Studies and Infrastructure Program. He was a hard worker and had hopes of going into planning public transit. His family said he was always so friendly and would greet and talk to everyone, whether he knew them well or not. He had been working hard on his last term paper and was looking forward to spending time with his friends and blowing off some steam. Zach came home from school and told his mum he had plans to meet up with Josh and some other friends in the nearby neighbourhood of Brentwood. He was going to take his bike to the party and cycle to classes in the morning so that he could have some drinks. As the evening rolled around, the atmosphere at 11 Butler Crescent was good. Jordan lived at the house along with a few others, and they were excited to host the party. While gatherings often happened at the property, the neighbours always said it was fairly quiet and nothing ever needed to be said to anyone inside the house. More people trickled in, totalling about 30. There was a fire pit in the garden. Everyone was unwinding and enjoying the spring evening. One of the guests who showed up a little later than most was 22-year-old Matthew de Grude, another student at Calgary. Matthew was the son of a senior officer with the Calgary Police Service and was described as someone that kept to himself, with friends saying he was polite, unassuming and a good student. He was majoring in psychology and minoring in law and society, and he had recently been accepted into the University Faculty of Law. He had had some struggles in the last year, having sought treatment for substance abuse. His parents had recently started encouraging him to seek help for his mental health issues, having noticed some concerning changes in his personality over the previous months. Matthew had been invited to the party by his childhood friend, Brendan McCabe, who was another roommate living in the house. Matthew hadn't accepted invitations to events in almost a year and was becoming fairly reclusive, so it was a surprise to most that he even agreed to go to Butler Crescent, let alone turn up. He had spent the day before posting lots of lyrics and song titles to his Facebook page. 
the last one being from an album by the heavy metal band Megadeth, before deleting all his previous posts. He had also spent time searching the internet, looking up things like Adolf Hitler and the Antichrist. The day of the party, Matthew had been working his shift at the local Safeway store, which started at 2pm and was set to finish at 11. One of his co-workers, Andrea, recalled he was unusually quiet during this shift. At one point, she saw him buying a package of garlic capsules, but didn't really think much of it. He then withdrew $500 from the cash point inside the store. Just after 8pm, three hours before his shift was supposed to finish, Matthew signed himself out and left the store, still in his uniform. Although he had taken his car to work that afternoon, he left it parked there and started making his way to Brentwood using public transport. At around 10pm, Andrea went looking for him, but he was long gone. She sent him a text asking where he was. He responded, Trust that I never hurt anyone. All will be known. 5. He also sent several strange messages to his parents, saying things like, Book of Revelations and Illuminati. On his way over to Brentwood, Matthew sent a message to Brendan. He asked for directions, which struck Brendan as odd, as he had been to the house before. However, Brendan left the party and went to meet Matthew at a service station, about a six-minute walk away. During the walk back, he recalled Matthew seemed quite agitated and in a strange mood. At one point, Matthew handed him some garlic and a knife with a serrated blade. When Matthew arrived at the party, people quickly became a bit unnerved by his topics of conversation. He was talking incessantly about conspiracy theories, the blood moon and the apocalypse. He told more people about the garlic he was carrying, which was now in his sock, explaining it was to keep the vampires away. At one point, Matthew put on some blue surgical gloves, even keeping them on to wash his hands. He told people he believed the world was ending at midnight, and the gloves, he explained, were to prevent any prince in case he was forced to kill someone when midnight struck. Many were now starting to feel very uncomfortable. Brendan said Matthew was a hypochondriac and had been the same since childhood, so things like washing his hands with gloves on didn't seem overly odd. But Daniel Sieben was another guest at the party, and he had known Matthew a while. The conversations he was overhearing started to worry him. He asked if Matthew would take a walk with him. Maybe this would clear his head. They left the house and went for a 45-minute stroll around the area, but the strange talks continued. When the pair came back... A witness saw Matthew throw his phone into the fire pit before someone pulled it out. Matthew grabbed it off them and smashed it with an axe he had got from somewhere in the garden before throwing it against the fence. After this, however, Matthew changed his tune completely and started chatting to Zach about his band and other people about his job at Safeway. Meanwhile, his parents who had been expecting him home were trying to get hold of him but weren't getting a response. Finally, He replied with a series of random and peculiar messages. Trust me, it's reincarnation this time. I do the right thing for once, instead of thinking only of myself. I'm okay, Mom, I promise. I will never die, and no one will die. You can't come here. You will die. His dad, Doug, sent him a message saying, Are you okay? I'm very concerned about your incoherent ramblings. He sent back, Illuminati. Mary doesn't have to die this time. Operation Mind Crime to American Soldier. His parents were now urging him to come home, worried he might try and hurt himself. His mother phoned the police, 
and his father went out to try and find him. When he found his car parked outside Safeway, even more panic began to set in. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One a.m. had soon come around. People at the party were getting hungry and tired, and the night was starting to come to an end. Four people, including Brendan, headed out to a McDonald's for food. Fifteen minutes later, Matthew's dad approached a patrol car on duty and explained the situation about his missing son. Just minutes later, the same patrol car would receive a call to head to Eleven Butler Crescent. Back at the house, Lawrence had fallen asleep on a chair in the living room and Joshua, Katie and Jordan were all sitting together just across from him. Zach was still awake and in the kitchen with Matthew. What happened next, according to sources, was unprompted and out of nowhere, with no warning and nothing that seemed to precede it. At 1.20am, Matthew grabbed a large knife from a block on the kitchen counter. He proceeded to stab Zach seven times, before quickly moving into the living room, where he stabbed Josh six times before turning the knife on Jordan. Katie tried to escape, but Matthew chased her into another room, before stabbing her four times. Lawrence was stabbed while he slept, a total of four times as well. Josh had suffered huge bodily trauma and was losing a lot of blood, but with everything he had, he pulled himself up and ran out of the front door screaming for help. Matthew followed him, chasing him down the street with the knife above his head. Josh then turned around and started running back towards the house. The few that had left to go and pick up McDonald's had now returned to find Josh running for his life, while Katie was screaming inside. Josh collapsed in the front garden and Matthew started to retreat from the house. Brendan followed him down the street and when he caught up with him, Matthew said it was the night of the long knives before running off again. But Brendan continued to chase him. Matthew stopped and told him he would be next if he didn't let him go. He wiped his bloody hands across Brendan's hands, telling him they were now blood brothers. Brendan then watched as his old school friend sped off into the night. Back at 11 Butler Crescent, one of the other roommates had been sat upstairs with her headphones in, drowning out the sounds of the party. She soon started hearing the commotion. She quickly locked her door and dialed 911. The dispatcher said she could tell the roommate was clearly scared but remained very calm as she asked for the authorities as quickly as possible. The dispatcher could hear the screaming and crying in the background. The longer she listened, the more she would start to hear the sounds of what would be the victim's final and awful moments. The call was so traumatising for her, she had to take substantial time off work, before eventually being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. The roommate upstairs was not the only person making calls to police. Two more calls were made over the next couple of minutes, while those that were not on the phone were trying to help the five that had been attacked. Less than three minutes after the first call was made, police canine units arrived at the house. The officers were met with Josh on the front lawn, still alive, but fatally wounded. Zach and Jordan were already dead, 
and they were lying next to each other on the floor inside. A friend was trying to save Lawrence by keeping pressure on his wounds, but it was too late. Lawrence's parents, Lorenzo and Marlene, said they had a sinking feeling in their stomachs as they were trying and failing to get hold of their son during this time. They didn't know why, but something was telling them they needed to hear his voice and make sure he was okay. His father eventually fell asleep staring at his phone, waiting for Lawrence to call him back. More people were in the room with Katie trying to save her. She was just about conscious. Josh and Katie were rushed to Foothills Hospital, but despite the best efforts of the medical staff, they would pass away within minutes of each other, shortly after arriving. Homicide detective Matt DeMarino estimated that all five victims were stabbed within one minute. Everything had happened unbelievably quickly. Police had flooded the neighbourhood, looking for Matthew DeGrude. Twenty minutes later, officers caught up to someone running away from the scene and matching his description. They had found him, just a few blocks away. Matthew didn't seem to be scared of the police or the dogs, and despite having sustained some injuries himself, he showed no signs of being in pain as he fought the authorities off. Officers said Matthew even punched a police dog and ran at one of the officers who had his gun drawn. The officer could see that Matthew wasn't armed and thus didn't fire. Matthew ran at him and tried to punch him, but the officer stepped out of the way just in time. A canine unit officer then took Matthew down with a hit and he was finally detained. Police were shocked when they realised he was the son of one of their own. Matthew later told police, I just want to say that when I stabbed them, I tried to do it mercifully. I aimed for their hearts. They put up a struggle which made it hard. But, so you know, it wasn't sadistic or anything. I didn't enjoy killing at all. I said sorry, but the Son of God was controlling me. He then said he was acting in self-defence after Zack had started intimidating him and after this, he had to kill everyone that saw it happen. Matthew asked to speak to a lawyer right away before being placed in an ambulance and taken to hospital. He first said he wanted the cheapest lawyer he can get, before asking for a lawyer that specialised in mass murders. He said, I was just trying to kill them before they killed me, saying he thought the five students were part of the Illuminati, werewolves and medusas, and that Satan had told him to kill them. He went on to say he believed he was the son of God and Hitler reincarnated. Doctors quickly determined he was in a psychotic episode and he was committed under the Mental Health Act. He would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Over the following hours, as news spread, family and friends would learn of what had happened. What had started as a yearly celebration, full of hope and promise for the future, had ended in the worst tragedy imaginable. Katie's family said they were absolutely sure the police must have identified the wrong girl as they had no idea Katie was even out at a party that night. As the knock came at Lawrence's parents' door, they knew straight away it was bad news. Jordan's mom, Patty, would see an unmarked police car pull up. Knowing a lot of people at the party and how close everyone was, she couldn't fathom how this might have happened. The police were reluctant to give her details, so Patty turned on the news trying to piece together the facts. Through watching a press conference, she would learn how Jordan had died. 
It was also through the media that Josh's parents would slowly start to realise their son had been in the very house that was now taped off and swarming with police. Zach's mom, Rhonda Lee, knew that her son was in Brentwood that night, but wasn't worried because she knew he hadn't planned on coming home. When she got to work that morning, she answered the phone from one of Zach's bandmates, Barry. He said that they were at the party that night, and Josh had been killed, but he didn't know where Zach was. Rhonda Lee phoned the police straight away, begging to know if her son had been at the scene. They said they would call her back, and after several painful hours of waiting, she would hear the devastating news as well. A neighbour next door said, What really touches me about it is how it can happen. I mean, we never heard a thing. Nothing ever happens here because we're in a crescent. We don't get any other traffic other than people that live here, people that are coming to visit. It's pretty shocking. It just goes to show it can happen anywhere. Let me start by saying that our hearts go out to the family and friends of all those that have been affected by this extremely tragic event. These were all good kids. There's no question about that. They did nothing wrong, and nothing that they did contributed to what happened to them. His name will be released once charges are officially laid, which we anticipate to be later this afternoon. I can confirm that he is the son of a 33-year member of the Calgary Police Service and is a student at the University of Calgary. I talked to the member just before coming down here. He is absolutely devastated and asked that I would pass on. He's heartbroken, as his, as his wife is, and he said, could you please pass on to the families our, incre- our total and complete sorrow and condolences as to what happened. They are, they are devastated and they feel so much pain for the families that were impacted by their son, and they wanted me specifically to pass that on. They have been incredibly cooperative with this investigation. They, they have told the investigators everything. Uh, our understanding is, is that one of the people uh, who, who lived in the residence welcomed them to the party and subsequently uh, left, and uh, nothing at all would indicate that there was an event that occurred earlier that precipitated what happened. This is the worst murder, mass murder in Calgary's history. We have never seen five people killed by an individual uh, at one scene. So the scene was uh, horrific. Soon after, 11 Butler Crescent was put up for sale. Matthew's parents said they were devastated and gave a statement to the media. I am Douglas DeGroote and I am an inspector with the Calgary Police Service, but I'm here today not as a police officer, but as a parent and a husband. I speak for my wife, Susan DeGroote, as we are one voice. We are shocked and devastated. And we are trying to make sense of what happened. We are deeply saddened for what the families and friends of the victims are going through. Your lives have been turned upside down. We know words cannot begin to ease your pain and suffering. Please accept our deepest condolences and know you are in our hearts, our thoughts and our prayers. Our condolences also go out to the first responders who attended the scene 
You had to detach from your emotions to do your job. Your professionalism was exceptional. Like any parent can tell you, a love for your child is unconditional. And we love Matthew dearly. He had a bright future ahead of him as he was about to start law school in the fall. Just like you, we struggle to understand what happened. We hope someday we will have answers as to why this happened. Regardless, it won't bring the victims back. But we would give anything to do just that. Our final words are to you, the media. We ask that you respect our family's privacy as we deal with this tragedy. Thank you for your cooperation. That's the end of the statement, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I would reiterate the degree... One by one, the students were laid to rest. Jordan, Katie and Josh were first, followed by Zach, then Lawrence. There are parents mourning tonight in Calgary as well after that city's worst mass murder. What happened early Tuesday morning makes no sense to anyone. How can, you know, the world outside still be moving when all of this has happened? It's done. They're gone. There's no getting them back. There's no turning the clocks. That's, that's it. I mean, at this point, I just personally just want justice. It was Zach among a lot of my other friends. I just broke down. Today, Rathwell's friends came together to remember. Many of the students grieving their friends are also struggling to come to terms with just who is accused of murdering them. He never seemed like the kind of person who would do something like this. He was going to law school. Like, he had everything going for him. Strangers, friends and friends of friends drawn to pay respects. David Adair knew Lawrence Hong. Always really cheerful and happy and welcoming. Very nice guy. Across town at Mount Royal University, five candles, one for each victim, were lit. Jordan Segura was a former student. Caitlin Paris was studying English. Just want to get it out there, what a nice, kind person she was, how she was living life the right way, how she, she was so excited about good stuff that was going for her. As a sign of respect for five lives cut short, flags across the city will fly at half-mast until each has been laid to rest. Carolyn Dunn, CBC News, Calgary. By April 23rd, funerals had been held for all five individuals. The whole community was shocked, and hundreds of people from all over would turn out to pay their respects at a public memorial held at the University of Calgary. The impact the losses had had on the students, teachers and community was clear for all to see. That same day, Lawrence would have turned 28 years old. He was passionate about his future in planning public transit, and his death prompted dozens of Calgary Transit employees to put their money together to pay for a special charter bus to travel from the university to the service. It was called the Lawrence Hong Express. The numbers 430 ran across the top in honour of Lawrence's birthday, which fell on April 30th. The University of Calgary arranged for counselling on campus for anyone affected by the events of that Tuesday. Matthew DeGroote has now been charged with five counts of first-degree murder. We're learning more about him tonight. Brian. On May 22, 2014, 
Matthew, who had been undergoing a 30-day psychiatric evaluation, appeared virtually before a judge. He was declared fit to stand trial, before being referred back to the psychiatric facility. Matthew's lawyer, Alan Fay, told reporters, Matthew was doing as well as can be expected. When he was asked why, if Matthew had been declared fit to stand trial, had he been sent back to the psychiatric facility, Alan said, Keep in mind that being fit to stand trial only means that he understands the process and he can instruct counsel. You can still be um, very profoundly mentally ill and be fit to stand trial. Obviously worried and apprehensive about what's happening and what will happen, but you know, um, other than that, he seems as good as he can be. Last time we talked to you about this case... It was all agreed that the psychiatric reports and investigation details would remain under wraps to give Matthew a fair trial. On May 16, 2016, just over two years since the murders, Matthew DeGroote's trial began. He entered a plea of not guilty. The room was so packed, journalists were given special permission to sit in the jury box as they watched it unfold. Matthew's defence team had pulled numerous doctors and experts to back what they were pushing for, Matthew to be found not criminally responsible for the murders. Day four of the Matthew DeGrood murder trial featured more evidence about his mental state at the time of the crime, this time from a psychologist who examined him shortly after his arrest for the killing of five people in a Brentwood home. His findings were that um, at the time of the events, my client... Um, suffered from a disease of the mind. He was uh, psychotic, probably schizophrenic, and that as a result of this mental illness he was suffering, he was incapable of understanding what he was doing. He believed he was acting in self-defense. He believed at the time they occurred that uh, he was about to be killed himself and his only alternative was to defend himself. His lawyer said, he wants to take his medication. He wants to remain well. He does not ever want to go back to where he was. I think the problem here is some people seem to think that deep down, he is just a psychotic killer, and he's welcoming the opportunity to revert to that status. And that's just ridiculous. Although the investigators pointed out the infamous text message Matthew had sent to his co-worker, and his use of the number 5, which they claimed was showing evidence of planning and a pre-planned attack, the allegation wasn't able to be proven in court. Packed courtroom today as closing arguments were delivered in the trial of Matthew DeGrood. The Crown referred to DeGrood as a killing machine and said the murders were done with brutality and ruthless efficiency. But the Crown also ended up by saying that it supports the finding of not criminally responsible. It applies to those who are found to have committed an act that constitutes an offence but cannot appreciate or understand what they did was wrong due to a mental disorder at the time. The justice in this case will now make his decision tomorrow morning. The justice presiding over the case found Matthew DeGrood not criminally responsible. It was ruled that he was not capable of understanding his actions that night were wrong. His case was moved out of the criminal system and into the healthcare system. Everyone connected with this tragedy could never forget the overwhelming heartache and suffering from the families of the victims. As we move forward, we will continue to keep the victims and their families in our prayers and hope that time will eventually begin to heal their pain and suffering. The Alberta Review Board reviews Matthew's case annually and spend time determining if he is still a significant threat to the public. When looking at the case each year, they have three options to decide upon. Keep him where he is, allow him conditional and supervised discharge, or discharge him completely. 
something which family and friends of the victims and those that were affected by the events of that night dread every year. In 2018, Matthew was moved to a secure facility in Edmonton, where doctors continued to look at his case. They described him as a model patient, and following this he was granted unsupervised ground privileges, as well as supervised passes into the city with a responsible adult, a status both his parents have. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want them to look at the reason why we are there not just how well he's doing and how well he's progressed. I want them to consider the reason that we are all here and all in so much pain and trauma, including them, because I think it's very difficult for them to have to sit and listen to to us, like like Craig said. I mean, you know, these five moms and the dads to talk about losing our children and how horrific it is. It is... um, so painful to have to go back to that same place and then to have people look at you with no compassion and no caring and tell you well we're just so happy that the man that murdered your child your children is doing so well a year later, the freedoms were again increased. The Alberta Review Board hearing Matthew DeGroote's progress from a psychiatrist as they look at the potential of new freedoms being granted. According to the Alberta Review Board, Matthew still relies heavily on his medication, which if he stops taking, is likely to lead to a relapse within weeks or months. A relapse that could be what they called full-blown and catastrophic. At a hearing with the Alberta Review Board in September 2021, he said, I accept what I have done, and I am truly sorry. I just hope one day I will be seen as a person who is able to earn his way back into society. The weight of this tragedy bears heavily on my shoulders and has not lightened over time. I carry the shame and guilt with me 24-7 and will forever. I want to make amends in any way I can. I'm committed to managing my illness. In 2021, the board rejected a complete discharge because they believed Matthew was still a significant threat to the safety of the public, but they allowed him more freedoms. This included staff-supervised camping trips and unsupervised passes to Edmonton. The treatment team have also started looking at transitioning him into a supervised group home in Edmonton. The board also heard that Matthew's psychosis is now in full remission, and there have been no problems with him taking his medication. Joshua's mom Kelly said, This is the sixth victim impact statement I will be submitting since my son Joshua's life was taken. I struggle every year with writing to honour Josh. I just can't seem to think of Josh without feeling sad about him not being here anymore. I miss him terribly. Matthew's case will continue to be reviewed by the board. Doctors and experts do believe he is on the path to a full discharge. What we're seeing is an accelerated release from an individual that's the most notorious mass murderer 
in the mental health system. We ultimately would like to see absolute discharges off the table for extremely violent offenders like Matthew DeGroote. I don't think that Canadians understand what an absolute discharge means. It means that he has all the rights and freedoms he had before he killed our five children. Um, Like you or I, he can move freely anywhere across the country, across the world. He does not have to take his medication if um, he chooses not to. He killed five young, healthy people in under two minutes. Um, I think that should scare Canadians because it scares the hell out of me. Lawrence Hong was granted a posthumous degree, as well as Zach, and memorial scholarships were established for Josh and Jordan. A memorial scholarship was set up at Counterpoint Dance Marda Loop, the dance studio where Katie had taught and studied. There is hope that the scholarship will allow underprivileged children, who otherwise couldn't afford classes, to be able to dance. After four years of planning, a memorial park was opened in South Glenmore Park to honour the five students. One day I'll have grandchildren and I want them to know about their Uncle Jordan. So I'll definitely bring them here. So I want Jordan and all of the kids to keep living on, you know, through other people. And this, that's what this legacy garden is going to do for us. He was taken from us so long ago. And some days it feels like he was taken from us yesterday. Some days it feels like he's still here. Um, it, uh, so today is... Well, happy, sad. It's, it's, it's nice to see it come to this point. Um, I wish Josh was here instead, but, um, you know, it's just a reality. It's really hard to describe something like that, but just when you know in your heart and your soul that someone is with you and they're proud and they're happy and they're full of so much love, it's an, it's an amazing thing. And, yeah, she is here with us today. I'm very excited today. It's been <laughs> four years. I had touched her heart and that had given us um, the light to move forward every day. My brother, he wanted to be an urban planner. He dreamed of cities that were vibrant and this is just, this is a part of him. The families came together to help design the space and with the help of numerous volunteers and over 600 donors who fundraised over $650,000, it was finally opened. The Quintera Legacy Garden features gorgeous views of the reservoir and city skyline. There are life-size instruments that people can play, benches, ornamental trees and a stage that people can perform on. The mission is to provide a peaceful, contemplative and vibrant outdoor space for Calgarians to reflect, heal and remember. A way of remembering how they lived and not how they died. A beautiful tribute that reflects the personalities of the five creative, passionate and talented individuals. Caitlin Peras, Joshua Hunter, Zachariah Rathwell, Jordan Segura and Lawrence Hong. <laughs>